Uh, my name is Taeyong Jung. I'm the cross-cultural pastor here at Epping. And uh, let's uh, talk to God first. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, as we open your word, uh, please speak to our hearts and help us to listen and also reflect your character in our daily lives. In your precious name, Amen. Phew, what a day it has been. A project deadline at work, a couple of assignments due, afternoon activities for the kids. We live in a harsh, selfish, uncaring culture which has a strong emphasis on increasing productivity. In this context, I see people who carry the burdens of relationships, work, family life, and personal frustration. I see moms and dads and grandpas and grandmas who stand in the pickup zone every Monday through Friday at 3.10 p.m. waiting to shuttle children to their next scheduled event. I see many young adults who are trying to sort out where they belong in this world while the world taps its toes, demanding that they hurry up and figure it out. When we run into a friend in our small community, we inevitably end up commiserating about how busy we are and how we can't get things done. We assure each other that we will get together soon, but of course, we won't. Sadly, at church, the conversations are the same. I'd love, help, I'd love to help, but I just can't right now. But actually, the message of Christianity is different from that of our culture. The message of the Bible, as we've been seeing in our Saved for Good Sermon series, is much more like be ready to do good because that's where you will produce good fruit. And that's what we see in the letter to Titus. In the preaching series, we have been identifying the signs that show us the spiritual health of a Christian community. Each week, we have been looking at how the gospel gives us hope and shapes the way in which we live in this world. And today, we are focusing on how the gospel shapes our public lives out in the world. In the passage we look at today, Paul reminds the Cretan Christians of their responsibilities as they engage socially with their neighbors. Paul is wanting to develop a passion for good works in those who read his letter by giving them the reason they might aim to live lives that are productive for the gospel. So look at Titus 3.8. It says, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trust in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. The passion 
in Paul's appeal to his audience is evident. Uh, this, should must use, uh, this should make us pay attention. Please don't miss this. Paul please, as he emphasizes the need for us to do what is good. For we read this instruction not just in the middle of chapter 3, as we have just read, but also at the beginning of this chapter, and again nearly at the end in verse 14. In verse 1, remind the people to be ready to do what is good. Verse 14 again, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. In fact, we can see Paul's concern that God's people will do good runs right through the whole letter to Titus. So, why is Paul so passionate about doing good? Everything starts with the appearing of God's kindness and love. He summarizes the Trinitarian act of salvation in verses 3 to 7, which is the trustworthy saying in verse 8. Let's come with me to verses 3 to 7. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rivers and renewed by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. But that's the point of this verse. It's not in order to earn salvation, but as the necessary consequence of God's gracious work, that believers are obligated to be intent on performing good works. Talking about the gospel among ourselves is not an end in itself. Have a look at verse 8 again. Do you see what Paul is saying? We are to stress teaching about the gospel so that we live the gospel. We are to stress the good God has done to us so that we do good to other people. There are two things we need to consider here. First, as you probably noticed, in Titus, doing good is related to the display of changed lives, which will contrast with the character of the opponents of the gospel the false teachers. The gospel creates a people who are eager to do what is good, passionate to do what is good, in spite of the many obstacles and difficulties we face in our day-to-day lives. However, the false teachers are unfit for doing anything good. Have a look at 116. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Second, notice the language here in verse 8, for everyone. 
And doing whatever is good is profitable for everyone. Not only our Christian friends, but also everyone in everyday life. In your home, on your street, in your workplace, in your school, in your neighborhood. This is radically different from how the world around us works, isn't this? My brothers and sisters in Christ, we live in a world of people who are foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, living in malice and envy, hating and hated. So it is very tempting to withdraw from that world or to look down on that world. Christians can find unbelievers scary. We find it much more comfortable spending our time with fellow Christians. Meanwhile, we tell one another stories of the appalling behavior of people in the bad world outside. When we look only for sin and problems in people's lives, we miss the great work Jesus wants to to do. That's why Paul encourages missional involvement in the world by focusing on doing good for everyone. That is that we do good works for them. In other words, it refers especially to the benefit that good works have for people. To act in ways that benefit others affirms the praiseworthy character of God who is by nature kind and loving. We get involved in the world, showing kindness and mercy in the same way Jesus entered our world, demonstrating kindness and mercy. Remember, God didn't stand at a distance from people, sinners, and neither should we. In fact, as followers of Jesus, being good in whatever ways we can is a way to engage with the world. Now, let me give you an example. Some of you may know, we, uh, my family, moved into a new area almost three months ago. And I met a bunch of new neighbors there. Uh, they are very friendly and chatty like the Chinese couple from Hong Kong who live right next door. We started getting to know each other, exchanging the usual information about our families and work and so on. It was very encouraging when the man's response to hearing that I work for the church was, that's why you are so nice. I know sometimes, but not always, (laughs) I confess. Uh, he's not a Christian, but he told me that he's been thinking about Christianity. Then our conversation moved on to discussions about church, faith, and life. Don't get me wrong. I'm not boasting about my good works. I'm giving thanks for this new opportunity to interact with non-Christians. And that's what we hope to result from acting in ways that are pleasing to God and are in line with his character. My neighbor's response 
encourages me to see that the gospel is changing me and to continue to be eager to do good works. Do you know what's the outcome of my continued conversation with him? I have more work to do because I'm watering his new turf while he's back in Hong Kong at the moment. Yes, there are there is more work, but that's how we engage with non-Christians. So what does Paul want to say? He encourages our missional involvement in the world. When he says we are to be ready to do what is good and are to devote ourselves to doing what is good, he is encouraging us to engage with this world, to seek to bless the world, even when the world throws it back at us. So what does this lead us lead to? Let me be very clear about something here. The true doctrine has nothing to do with speculation, controversies, or genealogies, but only with that which promotes good deeds. The latter wants us to be very careful when it comes to gospel productivity. Have a look at 3.9. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because they are unprofitable and useless. See that? Paul clearly contrasts what should be avoided in teaching and action with what should be taught and done. Paul lists four errors that must be avoided. He makes it clear that he believes it is foolish to get involved with the false teaching, controversial questions, or controversies. Now, let me tell you another story. Now, one Friday afternoon, I was walking around our new suburb with my youngest daughter, Grace. I met an Indian neighbor who was trying to water his new turf. I had met him a week previously, so we started talking again. His response was interesting, was different when I told him I work for a church. Immediately, he, he said, I went to a Catholic high school in India, but now I don't go to any church. I'm a Hindu. It sounded to me that he tried to draw a line between us. I'm a Hindu. Later, I came to understand the meaning of I'm a Hindu. For him, it means that he is happy or he doesn't bother to say that Jesus is just one of the many gods. But his kindy daughter responded differently to my daughter Grace. I wish he could respond to God's grace, but anyway. <laughs> because his daughter recognized mine from school, she invited her to play at her house. They became good friends and were sad when it was time to leave. So this leads to my question. It's kind of some case study. Do you think 
I have to point out to this man right from the start that Jesus is the Son of God, not just one of many gods. Have you had a similar experience in your school, workplace, or on Facebook? This is one thing we need to ponder here. According to Sanaka Rash Das, the director of the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies, as there is no church of Hinduism, everyone holds their own spiritual and philosophical opinions. It is difficult then to understand someone's spirituality simply by looking at their religious trappings. So in India, it is more common to hear someone ask, what is your sadhana, what is your practice, than what do you believe? It's interesting because Jonathan Edwards, an American revivalist preacher in 18th century, notes a similar thing. It is practice then that makes profession credible. So good deeds matter. But don't get me wrong. This doesn't mean that our faith is less important. It's obvious that we need to stress that God's goodness and love through his mercy in Christ have brought salvation. But at the same time, we need to learn how we can carefully devote ourselves to do good works, not unprofitable and useless works. That's a matter of gospel productivity. Interestingly, four of their unprofitable and useless in 3.9 are connected to the false teachers who had accepted Christ but were also promoting a continuing connection with Judaism especially in the form of speculative teaching and rigorous devotion to rules and regulations. A clear example is genealogies. They involve speculating about the origins and descendants of persons which are thought to have religious significance. We see that their problem is not only the theological operations but their unprofitable and useless behavior. This reminds us of 116. Now let me draw your attention to how Paul finishes the letter. Have a look at verse 14. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good, in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. That's what it's all building up to. This is the recurring theme of the entire letter 116, 27, 214, 31, 38. And it's an obvious attempt to drive the general lesson with their concrete case. What they are to learn is to engage in good deeds. They are to learn to give attention to this pressing need as part of the more normal routines of life. 
My friends, in this short letter to Titus, a pastor on the island of Crete, the Apostle Paul emphasizes how we are to live between Christ's first and second comings. Each of those two comings is understood as an appearing of a divine manifestation of grace and salvation. To see that nothing could make us more productive than the truth that we have been saved by grace, not because of anything we did, but because of the mercy of God. Paul is helping us to remember that Christ didn't come into the world to save good people. Christ came to save sinners like us. This is salvation. This is a trustworthy saying. In this foundation, he touches on many of the matters to help us stay on course in our Christian living. Let's wrap up. This evening, I'd like to encourage you to think about how and where you spend your time and energy. Do you engage with the world by doing good works? Are you ready to do whatever is good for everyone? We need to learn to do good, be good, and get better. But we can't achieve it, for it grows out of God's grace to us and to others. It is the fruit of grace, and therefore a testimony to grace. It's the ministry of grace. Grace alone brings salvation and produces godly lives. This grace continues its work in the life of every person in the church on credit and here in Epi. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us to know that by your grace and through your Holy Spirit, you bring unlikely sinners to service in your kingdom. Please help us to know why we serve you with good works and help us to do good works for your kingdom. In your precious name, amen.